The Interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma has a unique financing model for CNI and utility scale energy storage systems. Its customized lease options help you save money by reducing energy demand, participating in energy and ancillary service markets, improving renewables integration, increasing system reliability, and reducing your carbon. There's no design risk, no technology selection risk, no maintenance hassle, and the upfront capital expense is greatly reduced compared to a system purchase. Check out their website to learn more. It's prismaenergy.com. That's prisma, P-R-I-S-M-A, energy.com. We're also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is a global leader in flexible power plants, energy storage, and complete life cycle solutions for the power sector. Vertzilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% renewable energy, an open access tool based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide to illustrate the cost-optimal 100% renewable energy system. Find out more at vertzilla.com slash atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A, vertzilla.com slash atlas. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. In Boston, I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, is carbon transparency finally coming? We'll examine the new generation of climate labels, what's behind them, and will they stick with companies and consumers? Plus, we're going to answer a bunch of listener questions. I'm doing that with Shail Khan. He's out there in Berkeley, California. He's my regular co-host and my carbon conciliere. He's managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Shale, hey. Hey, Stephen. You're really into the alliterative uh, titles recently. I'm here for it. I do it for you because you expressed how much they delight you. I do really like them. Although saying conciliary is kind of difficult. I want to say consigliere, but consigliere is the right way to pronounce it, I guess. Sure. As someone who is definitely fluent in Italian, I can tell you that is, you got it perfect. So usually it's just me and you hanging out over video with our editor, Ingrid, watching over us. But I, I sense something different. Do you sense some people watching us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like the, the hairs on the back of my neck are sticking up a little bit. Well, we're live. To those of you who are listening to this after we record, we are as live as we can be in the time of COVID. I'm down here, as usual, in my recording booth. It is day 103 at home. I have this this uh, D-Day calendar that I bought for my wife as a stocking stuffer for Christmas. And little did I realize that I would be using it as my quarantine countdown clock. Uh, so uh, what day are you on? When you, when you flip that over, when you flip that over every day, is it like a, do you get like a little endorphin rush? Like, yes, another day. Like, well, <laughs> what is the sensation that you feel when you turn the day every day? It is oddly satisfying. What's the most eventful thing that's happened to you since the last time we had a live audience with us? <laughs> um, well, related to the live audience, I guess, and the fact that they can actually see me for once. So I've received two quarantine haircuts from my wife, uh, which I had to force her to give me haircuts. She was really not into it. So to be fair, she was resisting this from the start. But the first one was very good. First one we decided was exactly to the level of like a supercuts haircut, which I mean, pretty impressive. She had no experience in it. The second one, which is more recent, which we've gotten since the last uh, episode, looks fine in the front, if I may say so myself, which is fine for Zoom calls. She did, however, unfortunately, accidentally buzz a hole into the back of my head <laughs> right at the beginning as she was giving me a haircut. So uh, I, I have a small hole in the back of my head. <laughs> I am just staying away from 
all scissors, buzzers, whatever. I'm just going to ride this one out as long as I can. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the right move. I couldn't, I couldn't quite do it, but I also, now I wear hats like, you know, five times as much as I ever have in the past. Okay, so a bit later in the show, we are going to address some listener questions that are coming in in real time. First, though, let's talk. Let's turn to a topic that you have been thinking a lot about, Shale, and that is carbon transparency. So I read something the other day in this publication, Business Green. The CEO of Logitech called carbon the new calorie. Now, I've heard that phrase before, but he was referring to a brand new label that the electronics company will be putting on the packaging for its mouses, its keyboards, its webcams. And it's one of a bunch of moves from big companies to make the life cycle emissions of their products clearer to consumers and presumably clearer throughout the design process of their products. So this is the moment that you've been waiting for, Shale. (laughs) Not long ago, you made this prediction on this show that 2020 would mark the start of an era of carbon transparency. And we appear so far this year to have some affirmative signs. Now, I remain uncertain about this, but I am open-minded and I'm willing to entertain your belief in this trend, if only to entertain the people who are here listening to us. That's so kind of you. I hope that I can actually convince you that this is coming. Let Let me start with a question. Just estimate off the top of your head, how many grams of sugar do you think there are in a Kit Kat? Like normal size Kit Kat, not a king size. Good question. Uh, 30 grams of sugar. Okay. Um, now, how many pounds of CO2 would you estimate go into a an average pair of sneakers, not including shipping? I have no, I'm literally, I have no idea. Like I would have no way to calculate that in my head do you want to give a do you want to shepherd a guess how many grams of co2 go into a running how many shoe? pounds the fact that you asked how grams many pounds is Sorry. already <laughs> a problem how many pounds and to be more specific into a pair a pair of sneakers i i, I honestly like i just couldn't even begin to answer the question <laughs> you're like too embarrassed to actually put a number on it because you have no idea okay so this this will make my point well enough so the actual answer to how many grams of sugar in a kit kat in the newest version of the kit kat that i've seen 22 grams so you're you know pretty close i think relatively speaking are you somebody who counts sugar obsessively i was talking about the giant ones you see in the movie theater so in theory i was right you were pretty close is my point like you understand to within an order of magnitude how many grams of sugar are in a kit kat and the fact that you are so just like wildly uncertain about how much co2 went into a pair yeah flummoxed i guess would be a word how much co2 goes into a pair of sneakers is indicative of the fact that we do not have carbon transparency right now in other words you know as we know you know, climate change is um, driven by greenhouse gas emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions are emitted from like everything, you know, from the energy you consume, from the transportation that you do, from the products that you buy, from the shipping for those products. And for the most part, it's all pretty invisible to us right now. This is why there is its opacity effectively. And so the fact that, in fact, a pair of sneakers on average um, has about 27 and a half pounds of CO2 embedded within them from the supply chain, uh, you would never have been able to guess that. And so the idea behind carbon transparency, the sort of notion that I've been saying I think is coming, is that we will start to surface that information, the amount of embedded CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions in both products that we consume, decisions that we make, activities that we do, so that individuals and businesses can 
for just make more informed decisions about the things they do as it relates to climate change. Okay, so 27 pounds of CO2 still doesn't mean anything to me or the average consumer. And that's part of the issue that I have with uh, this carbon labeling thing. Like, I, I think that you ha we have to make the labels understandable to people. We can get to that. But first, I think we should talk about what is actually happening. Why are we having this conversation? What have you seen this year that leads you to believe that companies are embracing this new world or experimenting with it? Right. So, yeah, like you said, I've been, you know, thinking about this a lot for a while and started to started to believe that it's it's really going to come in the past year or so. But I would say just in the past two months, there has been actually a bevy of announcements to suggest that it's coming maybe even a little faster than I thought it was going to. So I'll give you some examples. So you mentioned Logitech, right? So that Logitech makes mouses and keyboards and all sorts of stuff um, like that. On June 17th, Logitech announced that they had developed a lifecycle analysis capability that computes the embedded emissions in all of their products, and they intend to um, add labels to those products. And like you said, the CEO said carbon is the new calorie. A couple months before that, in mid-April, Allbirds, the sneaker company, they became the first fashion brand to start labeling the carbon footprint of every sneaker that they produce. Uh, on June 5th, just Salad, which is like a national salad chain, announced a commitment to label all of its menu items with a corresponding carbon footprint in the store. I mean, if anybody ever actually goes in to buy a salad again, first U.S. restaurant chain to do so. They had a nice... Um, they had a nice frame for it. They said that the reason to do this is inspired by climatarianism, which is a way of eating that takes planetary health into account. Uh, and then the biggest one, it's by far, if this really comes to fruition, was 10 days ago, Unilever announced, uh, along with a big commitment, decarbonization commitment that many companies have made, a plan to carbon label the embedded emissions potentially in every product that they sell. Now, Unilever is you know, one of the largest producers of consumer packaged goods in the world. They have 70,000 products, everything from Dove soap to Q-tips to Axe body spray to Lipton tea to Hellman's mayonnaise to cup of soup. So they, they, were, they were a little wishy-washy in the language that they used, but the implication is that they ultimately intend to communicate the carbon footprint of every product that they sell within a relatively short period of time. That's So add all that up, and it's substantial. It is significant. I will give you that. But I am old enough to remember when some companies started experimenting with uh, carbon counting, similar to calorie counting, back in the 2007-2008 time frame. Now, I went back and I Googled carbon is, after I read that quote, I Googled carbon is uh, the new calorie. And a bunch of articles came up from like, around the 2007 time frame. And there were companies talking about this. Um, most notably, the major uh, supermarket chain Tesco in 2008 said that they were going to put carbon labels on all of their food. Uh, and they found that consumers were confused by it, that it was really hard to sort of track the carbon content of the different food products because where it's grown, how it's shipped, there's so many wildly different factors in how you calculate that. And the technology wasn't very good for tracking. So we saw some major announcements in the 2007-2008 timeframe. And then consumers didn't respond, companies found it complicated, and we haven't seen much since. In addition, I'm skeptical because we already have 
nearly 500 labels for everything from animal-free testing to sustainable building practices. There's a thing called the Eco-Label Index, and they track the massive amounts of labels, some of them which don't mean anything for consumers. Um, so consumers can get confused by this stuff. So anyway, I think this is a great interesting trend, but I remain a little bit skeptical because of the history here. I think the skepticism is fair, and it's entirely possible that this could just fizzle, right? You could just have a few companies announcing it, and then it it never goes anywhere. Or for example, they start, you know, you can find the carbon label on a company's product webpage, but it's not listed on the product itself. And I mean, so I'm, I'm not, I'm, I have open eyes here. Like, I don't think this is a foregone conclusion, but I do think some of the things that you just described as challenges in the past are less so now, certainly the technology side, right? Like we're getting better at tracking su embedded supply chain emissions. And there's a whole bunch of efforts to automate that process in a way that it has been challenging historically. Historically, that'll, you know, one, just sort of force companies to reckon with their their scope three emissions, which comes from their supply chain. Um, and two, it'll, you know, I think make it easier for them to to incorporate that into, into these types of calculations. So the technology has gotten better. It's easier to track. I think also a decade has passed. And, you know, the surveys suggest that concern around climate change has only increased over time. And so the pull for com from consumers, I think, is stronger than it was a decade ago. Um, and I think that there, what will be interesting to see is, you know, at the end of the day, companies can do this because they are altruistic. Or they could do this because they think their customers want it, or they could do it because they are mandated to do so. Let's set aside that third one for a moment. It's possible that at some point, carbon labels on some things will become mandatory. It could be regulated into action. Setting that aside, some companies will do this because they are altruistic and, and want that. Some companies will do it because it's good for their brand. So I'll give you an example here. So Etsy does not do sophisticated carbon labeling or anything like that, but they did start offsetting emissions for the shipping emissions associated with the products that they sell. Um, they've been doing that for over a year. So anytime you go buy something on Etsy right now, you'll see a little thing that says Etsy has offset the emissions associated with the shipping of this purchase. And I saw um, something from the company where they said, you know, the the shopping cart is a really sensitive place for a company like Etsy. Like they are very, very sensitive to what they put in that shopping cart page because they need you to check out. And they said, you know, you do not want to mess with it a whole lot. You don't want to make it confusing. So they were worried that when they put this little carbon offset label in there, it would confuse people exactly like you were saying and actually hurt their business, in which case this is never going to scale. Instead, they found the opposite. They were hoping at best for a neutral result, but they actually got increased conversion rates as a result. And so the bet here is not only that we can do better carbon labeling now um, and provide better carbon transparency, but also that it will be accretive to the brand of at least some of the companies that start doing it. And that'll create a snowball effect. So this reminds me of the conversation that we had recently on carbon offsets and how companies are tracking carbon reductions. And um, and that what's new today in the way that uh, companies are reducing carbon or paying to reduce carbon is that there's there are better ways to track this. So what's different technologically today that makes these carbon labels potentially more accurate or more transparent? I think, again, you know, what we can do is one thing to estimate the, for example, average emissions embedded in a pair of sneakers 
without differentiating amongst the different kinds of sneakers and where they come, came from and how they were produced and manufactured and so on. What you actually want is a specific label. For example, in food labeling, right? The label that you, the nutrition label that you get on your food is very specific to that thing in that package. It is the amount of sugar and the amount of carbohydrates and whatever else. So you want to get to that point with any kind of carbon labeling on a product or on a service. And so another example related to uh, an activity where you could do carbon labeling is like, what are the emissions associated with this airline ticket that I theoretically might buy, but certainly will not buy in the next few months? Um, that should not be an average emissions associated with a long haul flight. It should be the emissions associated with my particular participation in this particular flight. Those are the areas where technology has gotten a lot better and you can, you know, a lot of the systems that you need to link into to calculate that kind of stuff, there are APIs now. So you pull in data from whatever the relevant system is, whether that be supply chain management platform or, you know, into your electricity consumption, whatever it's going to be, combine all that together, run some analytics and you can come up with somewhat specialized and personalized carbon calculations. I do want to make one other point though, which is Though I think it makes sense for us to be talking predominantly about consumer products here, I think actually carbon transparency is a little bit broader than that as well. And we will start to see this outside of the direct to consumer realm. So for example, um, in May of this year, this is all happening pretty, pretty real time. In May of this year, EN Plus, which is the largest aluminum producer in the world outside China, um, started calling for the publication of universal standards for the carbon footprint of primary aluminum. In June of this year, the London Metals Exchange, for the first time in its 143-year history, set up a trading platform for quote-unquote low-carbon aluminum. You could imagine the same thing happening for other commodities, for concrete, for plastics. It's like decommodification of commodity products to differentiate amongst those which are low-carbon and those which are not. That, to me, feels like where there is more impact and more meaning. The consumer products piece is interesting to me and certainly will have an impact on the choices that people make. But if you can put those labels on commodities and you can um, make that clear for mass buyers of products, then you're talking about a whole different ballgame here. I think that it's easier to, you don't, you can be a skeptic and, and understand why a low carbon aluminum trading market makes sense. But just to, to make the case, I guess, for the consumer side of this, I think the best corollary here is going to be food labeling. Um, think about something like organic, for example. Organic food in the United States is a $50 billion annual market, right? So we put a label that says organic on things. Most people do not understand what organic means. I certainly barely understand what organic means when I see it on a food, but a lot of people um, just instinctually given the choice between an organic thing and a non-organic version of the same thing, even if they're paying a little bit more for the organic thing, choose the organic thing. Do you not think the same thing would happen if we did that with products from a climate change perspective? And if we did do that and it did change some minor amount of consumer behavior, but it did so at scale, would that not then you know, create a reverberating effect back up the supply chain that basically is an incentive for companies and consumer product companies to green their supply chain. Oh, I absolutely do. But the key is how you create value for consumers. How is it relatable? And 
as far as I can tell, some of the the, the or the the carbon label from Logitech, for example, is very confusing to me. So the I'm looking at the label here, and it's like it looks kind of like what you would see on a video game or something. Um, it's this you know white and black box with a C. And it's got it says 8.2 uh, kilograms of CO2, carbon neutral. And like, what the heck does 8.2 kilograms of CO2 mean, first of all? And then what does carbon neutral mean? So if I see that on my label, even as someone who follows the space, I cannot like make a decision based on that label. Um, and we did get a bunch of questions that came in about this too. Um, Someone asks, carbon transparency is one thing, but placing a value on it as is key. So, I, you know, the value to consumers is really important, making it relatable. Um, someone else asks, uh, what's the alternative? How many pounds of CO2 in a pair of leather shoes compared to those tennis sneakers, right? So how can you compare it to something else? And there are a couple other questions in here that touch on this as well. So for me, there's a lot into the marketing that needs to improve to make this a real influencer on people's decisions? So I think those are great questions. And I think they're they're the perfect set of second order questions in my mind, which is the first thing is just surface the information, just make it available. For example, 7.6 kilograms, when you see that on your Logitech thing for the first time, you've never seen a carbon label before, and you see clim climate neutral or whatever it is, you have no idea what that means. You probably won't change your behavior. But imagine you start seeing those numbers on a bunch of different products. And over time, you develop pattern recognition. You start to be able to understand differences amongst them. I don't know, like, on its own, what 100 grams of carbohydrates are. I have no reference for that, except that I've compared the amount of carbohydrates in one thing to the amount of carbohydrates in another thing. The other thing that we've done with nutrition labels, which I think it'd be interesting to think about how you would do a similar contextualization for carbon is, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to the number of grams of carbohydrates. They pay attention to the thing next to it that is a percentage of a daily diet. So you could imagine doing the same type of thing if you wanted to create sort of official numbers for a daily diet diet of, of CO2 or even just a relative benchmark. Is this higher than average for sneakers or lower than average for sneakers? The other point that I would make is ultimately the point here is not just to surface the information. It is to allow for decisions based on that. So the question about is this better than leather sneakers or worse, that's a really important one in my mind. And I think what you'll start to see as a next step after the labels arrive is some decisioning that you could do around that. I think we've talked about this before, but one, one obvious example would be, imagine you're at checkout online to buy some product that's gonna get shipped to you. And imagine you could choose multiple different shipping options. And some of the slower shipping options um, have a lower embedded CO2 in them, right? So right now you, you're selecting exclusively based on price and when it gets delivered to you. Imagine if you could surface that third factor. Some people probably would say, yeah, I don't need these that quickly and I'd rather use the more sustainable shipping method. So stuff like that, I think, is born out of carbon transparency, but you got to start by just like have the data, make the data available to people. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Amazon now has an option where you can put items in a package on Amazon day. I mean, they might've had this for a while, but like they, they are now more explicitly say, if you want your items in a single package, you can have it delivered on a Thursday. And like, I always choose that option because I want all my stuff in a single package. And then you can see how they could add on some kind of carbon transparency piece to that offering. And I'm gonna pick that every single time. The food piece is really interesting to me because 
ultimately, you know, if you look at nutrition labels, most of us are not nutritionists, but we can understand, we can make sense of a nutrition label. And a lot of that goes back to the deep history of the government educating people about food, creating the food pyramid, and then adapting that over time. And I think there was a, a big public education piece that came in that made people comfortable with reading a nutrition label. And so it feels to me like, I don't know what the answer is here, but there's a massive public education piece because somehow I'm able to make sense of a nutrition label, even though I don't have a nutrition background. Yeah. I mean, what happened with nutrition labels is ultimately they were standardized. Right. And so you're used to seeing the label that looks the same, regardless of what you're buying. And that's because the government stepped in. So one path you might imagine here is that a bunch of companies start introducing carbon labels of one kind or another under products and services, but they all look different, right? Because it is not standardized. There's no standardization. And so it actually does become this weird mishmash and it's becoming confusing from a consumer perspective. At some point, the government does step in and says, okay, here's what a standard carbon label looks like, or here's how we grade. We can give you A to, a to F grades um, for different products and here's how the grades will be done. I mean, I could imagine that happening. I don't think it starts from the government down. I think it starts from the labels up. But I will say that on the food labeling side, there's a bunch of evidence that just putting those labels on food changes behavior for both customers uh, in terms of their nutrition and for companies. So I was looking at a, a study in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. They found that food labeling, this is across, this is like a meta-analysis of a ton of studies, 2 million observations of people across 11 countries. They found that food labeling reduces the intake, intake of calories across the board by 6.5%, fat by about 10.5%, and generally other unhealthy choices by about 13%. Um, on the company side, I thought this was really interesting. They evaluated the potential for food labels to motivate food companies to make changes to their products. And they found the labels reduced the amount of harmful trans fats in food by 64%. So this is the kind of thing that I think you're trying to drive toward if you're into this carbon transparency idea. I think you've established the reason why this is important and the fact that there is new activity with technological solutions behind it that may make it impactful. So the big question is, what's the business opportunity? Uh, how are you evaluating what this means for investment opportunities? Yeah, it's a really good question. I will say that this is a big open question to me. I think I think that carbon transparency is coming. I think there's demand for it amongst corporates, and I think there will be demand for it amongst consumers once it is made available to them. It's not clear to me exactly where the business opportunity lies in this yet, because as, as we've said, right, all those examples we gave of companies who are starting to introduce carbon labels are just doing it themselves. So it's not necessarily true that there needs to be some third-party private business that is the one doing all the, for example, calculation to allow you to produce a carbon label. But I do think that surfacing the information for consumers in a scalable fashion, perhaps even in advance of the companies doing it themselves, will have some value. And there's an opportunity. There are various business models you could build off of that. So there's a consumer-facing play somewhere in there, and there's a corporate-facing play somewhere in there. Uh, it might have more to do with like calculating scope three emissions or something like that. But to me, this is this is an open question. I would not say that I've found a business that feels like it's solving this problem on its own. Well, now if I want to stump people, I'm just going to ask them how much carbon goes into their tennis shoes. See how they, they like flounder around like I did. Yeah, or everybody else already knows and it's going to be really embarrassing for you. <laughs> 
Coming up, we're going to take listener questions in real time. First, though, we're going to talk about our sponsors who help bring you this show for free. We're brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma helps developers, municipalities, CNI customers reduce energy demand charges, generate income, and increase grid reliability. They do that through a lease offering for energy storage. This five-year lease reduces transaction costs and allows customers to benefit from storage without being exposed to the financial and operational risks of ownership. There's no designer technology risk, no maintenance or warranty hassle, and the upfront capital expenses are greatly reduced compared to a system purchase. Prisma has relationships with top-tier suppliers and integrators in the battery storage industry, and they'll customize the lease option to fit any customer's need. To learn more, visit prismaenergy.com. That's P-R-I-S-M-A, prismaenergy.com. We're also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. With 72 gigawatts of power plant capacity in 180 countries around the world, Vertzilla offers flexible power plants, energy storage, and life cycle services that ensure increased efficiency and guaranteed performance. Vertzilla has taken a leading role in supporting the energy sector as it undergoes a transformation toward greater flexibility, efficiency, and sustainability. Based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide, Vertilla's team was able to find the cost-optimal energy mix for a 100% renewable energy system in all of the world's regions. It's known as the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy. The goal of the Atlas is to help customers in choosing future-proof solutions that will optimize operational costs of their power systems, and you can see your cost-optimal path at vertzilla.com atlas, W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A dot com slash atlas. Let's turn to some listener questions now. We have a bunch coming in here. Um, so there are a few that I am seeing on different uses of technology. Let's go to this one. It's a top-rated question on renewable natural gas. Um, This person asks, as we continue greening the electric grid, should we also prioritize greening the gas grid with RNG and other innovations? We were um, thinking about doing a renewable natural gas uh, episode recently. So what do you think? Where should we start on this question? Um, What is the role of RNG? How have you been thinking about it as you've been kind of looking at its role in decarbonization? Yeah, I would admit to being somewhat of a novice on RNG. So I'm I'm by no means an expert there yet, but I think it's I think it's pretty interesting. And I think so I think there's a, a higher level question, right? Which is like where there is a bunch of debate amongst folks who are focused on decarbonization, which is what do we do with this all this gas infrastructure that we've built up? Do we strand the infrastructure, try to shift as fast as possible off of gas onto other stuff and, you know, have a bunch of stranded infrastructure somebody's going to have to pay for? Um, can we do that logistically or do we green that infrastructure? And there's multiple ways to do that partially or entirely. Um, and, you know, in the process of so doing, decarbonize the gas system while we transition. I I think that I'm inclined to believe that greening the gas distribution system is a part of the solution here. And RNG is a part of that solution. Additional you know, ways to to do that. For example, people talk about using hydrogen. You produce green hydrogen and inject some of it into the gas pipeline network, sort of like what we do with ethanol um, already. It, you know, you could, or ethanol with, with gasoline. Um, you do the same thing. But I think RNG, which is, you know, you, you ran, run an anaerobic digester on a on landfill gas waste or something like that. Um, 
seems to have a, a big role to play. The one thing I will say is that, as I understand, the life cycle emissions of RNG are highly dependent on the source and use. Um, so you have to be really careful about what type of RNG. It's not just a true commodity from a GHG perspective. What do you think? Let me just clarify for any listeners. When we talk about renewable natural gas, as you said, we're talking about mostly methane from landfills or agriculture sources. Uh, we, we could also be talking about synthetic methane from using hydrogen as a feedstock. And there is certainly a lot of focus on using excess renewable electricity for electrolysis to create hydrogen and then create you know synthetic fuels with that hydrogen. Um, that, to me, is the more interesting component. Um, and I think if you look at the renewable energy grid, it does make sense to have some kind of flexible generation. And a renewable fuel component of that will be important. And so you can solve a lot of challenges potentially under a high renewable energy grid using that excess renewable electricity to create hydrogen and then have some kind of synthetic renewable fuel that you burn in flexible gener for flexible generation. I think that there is an, a pretty strong economic case for that. But there is a lot of debate over how much we should be greening the existing gas system, right? So uh, SoCal Gas, which is certainly investing in a lot of like up and coming technologies, uh, renewable natural gas uh, options, really says, hey, we should be heating buildings with with gas and it's just as cheap to electrify them. But if you look at their assumptions there in California, they're assuming that most of that gas is actually going to be coming from out of state. So there are supply issues, there are cost issues, and a lot of electrification advocates say, hey, just let's not even think about the gas grid. Let's think, let's just electrify buildings as quickly as possible. We can do that faster and we can do it cheaper. So to me, there's still a lot of unsettled analysis here. Yeah, that feels right. Um, I, I intend to spend some time learning more about RNG over the next few months. So if any of our listeners, kind listeners are expert in the space, rather than uh, yelling at me about what I said, I would love to, I'd love to learn. Yes. And as I said, this is a, a something that we wanted to devote an entire episode to. So if you happen to have specific expertise in that, we are more than willing to take your suggestions for specific topics or uh, how to approach it. Um, definitely something that is on our radar more and more. Okay, we got another top rated question here. How will ESG evolve in the next 12 to 18 months? We had a live energy gang and we discussed a variation of this question, but I know you have been focused on the, the ESG space, Shale. First of all, what is ESG and what are your thoughts on this question? ESG is bananas, is what I have to say about ESG. I, I find it <laughs> fascinating. I have been spending a lot of time learning about ESG lately. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And um, it's a framework, you know, loosely speaking, through which investors largely, whether they be investors in public or private companies, stocks, bonds, whatever, um, consider investments. They score highly on ESG. They score low on ESG. They filter bad ESG investments out. They create ESG-only vehicles. Uh, the problem is that ESG does not have a standard definition. Right. There are a bunch of different frameworks and reporting templates that companies can use to, you know, to, to, to share publicly metrics around their ESG performance. There are literally over a hundred different ratings agencies, independent ratings firms who are offering ESG scores on companies. Those ratings are highly uncorrelated. 
even amongst the top raters, the, the rating for the same company can vary pretty widely. And then even if you're, they are correlated, you know, combining ES and G together creates some real issues. So like your obvious example here is Tesla, right? So on E, environmental performance, I think it's pretty safe to say Tesla should be among the highest rated companies in the world. Can you agree with that? Okay. On S, social, um, you can make a case either way, I think, with Tesla. Generally, probably pretty positive from a social perspective. They have had some labor union issues in some of their manufacturing facilities, so you could ding them for that. Like, they're somewhere in the middle, probably, on social. And then the third is governance, which is effectively, um, does the board do a good job of exerting control and restraint on the CEO? I would make a strong case that Tesla should be among the worst performers on yeah. that metric, right? And so if you're just trying to create a single ESG score for a company like Tesla, how do you even do that? So it's this crazy burgeoning world of different scores and metrics and all this kind of stuff. But the reason it matters is because the the fund inflow, the amount of capital that is being linked to ESG in one form or another, to securities that are tied to ESG or attaching ESG screens is huge. It is huge. Goldman Sachs asset management alone uh, went from something like $17 billion of ESG-linked securities under management in 2018 to $76 billion in 2019. It's just exploding. And it's gone even further during the pandemic because um, ESG securities across the board have generally outperformed the market especially when there was the downturn a couple months ago. And so the money is just flying into this sector. But meanwhile, it is this sort of complicated morass of different metrics and frameworks. So to me, the ultimate challenge here is ESG is as God is the right mindset, right? It is try to use investment as an investors, stakeholders, shareholders, as a mechanism to incent companies to perform better on environmental, social, and governance issues. That's the right thing to do, I think. And it's exciting to see that all the money is flowing into it. But I worry that this edifice that we are building around ESG is just going to topple unless there is some clarity created for the companies themselves and for investors so that they know what they're actually investing in. That sounds remarkably similar to our carbon transparency conversation. I mean, it's, you know, I don't think we're yet at this point where there's a million different ways to calculate the same embedded carbon emissions. If if carbon transparency is successful over the next couple of years, maybe it ends up where ESG is today. That's possible, but it's earlier in its evolution. Like there is not the same amount of capital dedicated to you know, scope three carbon emissions tied funds as there is ESG funds. Now, this question seems to be implying what, how will ESG evolve in the next 12 to 18 months? It's a, it's a question in response to the pandemic, right? So will the economic shock um, change the way companies are reporting or change their emphasis on sustainability or social goals? So it sounds like Companies with clear ESG goals have outperformed other companies in the market, in the public markets. Uh, I, to, just to clarify there, it's not necessarily companies with ESG goals. It's companies, it's securities tied to ESG. In other words, um, as defined, companies that score well on ESG have outperformed the overall market, at least over the past six months. Okay, that's very helpful. Thanks for the clarification. And I guess the the the, the implication here is, do, does this change as a result of the economic shifts from the pandemic? 
It's a good question. It's one of those areas where I think you could have imagined that in a downturn, in a recession, um, given all this other stuff going on, you might see a pullback in this somewhat nascent space of, of ESG investing. And in, instead, we've seen the reverse, both in terms of performance of these ESG-linked securities and in terms of inflows into ESG-linked funds. So at least thus far, it appears it's going faster than ever. Uh, and I don't see any reason why that's going to stop anytime soon, unless, as I said, it all just becomes too confusing. There's no trust in the market. The whole thing falls apart. Okay, let me go down the list here. I won't pick just the top rated one. So I'm going to pick um, V to G. A listener asked about V to G, vehicle to grid, and V to H, vehicle to home. So they're asking, how far away is V to G or V to H from widespread adoption? Uh, heady question. And I also know, I picked this one because uh, I, I think you have been focusing more on the V to G, V to H space recently. So what's your take? Where where are we in the adoption curve? So let's make sure we're clear on terms. So V to G means dis it's effectively discharging your electric vehicle battery into the grid, right? Feeding power back into the grid um, via your electric vehicle. V to H means discharging your electric vehicle into your home. So the use case for V to H is, you know, potentially using your electric vehicle as a backup battery instead of using like a power wall or something like that as a backup battery in the home, but not necessarily feeding it into the grid. Um, I'd say you could consider me a bit of a, a skeptic on V to G. Uh, I just can't quite figure out how the economics are strong enough relative to the cost. The cost being, one, you are cycling the battery more and increasing degradation. You might void the warranty on the battery unless you have an agreement with the battery manufacturer. Two, you know, you are discharging the battery, so you're, the car is not going to be available to you if you want to drive it, which might not matter to you in the middle of the night, but might matter sometimes. And three, the, the, the value you can yield um, in the market, it just isn't that high. So given all those constraints, I just, it's hard for me to picture how V to G really scales, though I would be happy to be proven wrong. V to H, I find kind of interesting because, you know, a just economically, if you want a backup, if you want backup power, if you want the grid, um, or if you want power when the, the lights go out, um, a an electric vehicle, if capable of doing V to H is actually a way cheaper solution, like far, far cheaper solution than putting a power wall on your wall or something like that. So if you're going to have an electric vehicle anyway, why not get one that is capable of being backup power in your home? Right. But it seems to me that there's still an issue with the warranty. Uh, it feels to me like for both V to G and V to H that like the trepidation about cycling the battery, how the battery is used and how that impacts the warranty is one of the bigger roadblocks. I think that's right. I mean, I think you need you need the vehicle OEMs or the battery manufacturers. You need them on board um, in order to do this without voiding the warranty or you need to be comfortable with, with doing so. If, it, if it's proven that there's substantial consumer demand, I think they'll work out a solution there. Like it's a current roadblock, but it doesn't strike me as one that will make or break the market. The question is, can you craft a value proposition for customers that is um, easy enough and attractive enough that they'll be willing to let somebody else, I mean, on the V2G side, discharge their battery into the grid at the expense of the range of their own battery or expense of the charge of their own battery. Whereas the V2H one seems a little more straightforward to me. You would only do that in the circumstance where power is out. So, and it's your choice. If power is out and you want your vehicle to power your house, like 
Go for it. What is clearly coming faster is V1G or managed charging. And that's basically uh, the utility or some other independent company treating charging more like demand response. And you just sort of stop the car from charging. The consumer gets paid to allow the, you know, the utility to, to stop the charging. And that to me feels like a more traditional demand response piece that avoids some of the warranty issues. And that, that feels more immediate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's more than just demand response, though. It's not just turning off the charging at certain times. It's scheduling charging according to um, the needs of the grid or scheduling charging according to time of use rate. So, you know, you schedule your car to immediately start charging when your rate goes down, you know, at 9 p.m. or whatever it might be. Like that stuff, I think that stuff, I think, is coming. There's It already exists in some places. I think that'll be pretty universal, whether it's done by direct control from a third party or a utility or whether it's done just by setting automated times um, according to your your rates. But I think increasingly there will be EV-specific rates that make it you know, beneficial to you to schedule your charging accordingly. Gosh, we've been talking about V to G for well over a decade. And it doesn't feel to me, I mean, if I don't know, it doesn't feel like it's coming anytime soon. Um, I mean, there's, it, it exists, you know, at small scale. There are little V to G pilots being done all over the place. I don't, right. I don't think it's going to become widespread or ubiquitous anytime soon. Okay. So we have a couple questions here about like the role of COVID on the energy transition. Someone asked about how it will affect cities, their role in the energy transition, um, you know, we started 14, 15 weeks ago, this pandemic with big questions about how changing behaviors would shift energy consumption, would shift electricity markets. Um, what were some of the lasting behaviors or way that people were getting around in cities or the way that cities were structured that might come as a result of this pandemic? And so I wonder, is there anything that you're reevaluating today that you were assuming would happen as a result of this pandemic? Um, or are you still kind of taking a wait and see approach? Um, I guess I would say I'll admit that when this all started and people started saying, oh, you know, more people are going to be working from home. There's going to be a bit of a flight from dense urban areas that are, you know, where the cost of living is really high and that's going to last. And, you know, I was pretty skeptical of that. I, I thought that people, you know, generally behavior snaps back and we, what feels like we, we fall into a new normal fast, but then we also just like revert back to the old normal just as fast. And I will say I'm reevaluating that to some degree. Now it does, it does feel to me like there's probably a longer term effect on, um, on where people live and how they move around to get to work. I, not clear to me that that's going to be big enough to have a substantial impact, for example, on energy consumption overall. Once we come out of the pandemic and people start going back to offices, I don't think you see, for example, what you might imagine is if there's a massive work from home revolution that continues well after, then, you know, residential energy consumption remains elevated. Commercial energy consumption remains depressed for like an extended period of time. And I, I sort of doubt that. Um, but I do think that we'll see a little bit more of this than I was, and, and it'll last a little longer than I was anticipating at the start. What about you? Clearly more people are going to be working from home and a lot of them are going to be working from home permanently. There is a massive reckoning and reconstruction happening in the corporate space 
And there will be jobs that just probably will never go back to offices. And that will certainly have an impact on transportation emissions when you have fewer people driving into cities. So that, that of course, has a first-order impact on the actual pollution and emissions from cars in the transportation sector, but it also has second-order impacts in what you can do with city streets. So if you have lower congestion as a result of fewer people coming into cities, then you can you can see that as cities get more comfortable with putting restaurants out into uh, into the streets, some cities are experimenting with making a lot of their streets uh, much more walking accessible, that that completely opens up this new way of thinking about how to design your streets, uh, how to get people around, how to give them more space. And ultimately, that that I can see a world in which that squeezes out the car. Now, does that cancel out the lower use of public transportation? I don't know. And I think it's going to be some time before we see how what happens when fewer people use public transportation. But to me, there will be a direct impact on what city officials can imagine in terms of how people get around in their streets and what that does to the role of the automobile. I mean, I 100% agree with you there. We have one of our portfolio companies at EDIP is is, uh, called Remix, and they are basically a software platform to help cities um, make decisions around transportation partially around things like planning bus routes, but they also um, help cities design streets and redesign streets. And they're seeing in real time, all of these cities who are, you know, using the platform to like put in protected bike lanes, or actually here's one near and dear to yourself, Stephen, um, city of Somerville is one of their customers and the city of Somerville just created a bunch of space that was, was formerly like a, a lane for vehicles on one of the streets. That's now called a streetery. It's basically to, you know, create outdoor seating for restaurants so that restaurants can reopen with outdoor seating. Um, so they designed this on remix and they're seeing it happen like over the course of days, they'll like, you know, does a mock up and design a new street design and then implement it. And then, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see once, once we go back to normal, if that ever happens, do things like that, these lanes that used to be for vehicles and now are for dining, do they retain the new use? Uh, we have a native Italian speaker who says that uh, I pronounced concili- <laughs> conciliary well. I-, I don't know if I just pronounced that right now. <laughs> well, just now. But anyway, thank you very much. Uh, okay, rapid fire here before we end. Um, we have someone asking about the future of peer-to-peer energy trading. Now, you have spent some time thinking about this as a result of um, the initial interest in blockchain any thoughts on whether this will be a reality, whether it makes sense, whether blockchain is a thing that people are even thinking about now, and will this enable anything interesting? What's up with peer-to-peer energy trading? Well, let's separate peer-to-peer and blockchain, because blockchain has many, yes. as we've talked about, many different potential uses within energy, some of which are more exciting than others. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to get into a whole blockchain thing. I will, I will express continued bafflement about peer-to-peer. I don't understand... I don't understand why it's needed. I don't really understand the point of it. I've never seen any, no, no one's been able to convince me that peer-to-peer is the future. Uh, there, there are lots of ways to operate a distributed energy system that do not require a peer-to-peer marketplace. So consider me a deep skeptic on that one. Okay. Um, and then we have someone asking about small modular nuclear as part of the energy transition. Um, I will say that neither of us are experts on nuclear. Um, 
this is definitely a topic that we want to cover in greater detail. I will say that in a world in which you can cost competitively and fairly quickly get 80, 90% renewable energy with batteries and so, and and then, you know, some flexible generation on top, flexible thermal generation on top. It feels like the the possibility of small modular reactors playing a big role is slipping away. Not because I don't think that we should be pursuing the technology, but the time to market and the cost of many of the prototypes and pre-commercial projects is just so high and the world is changing so fast. Um, I, I, I don't see small modular reactors playing a major role in the current energy transition. Now, I could be wrong, but to me, the world is changing very fast. I don't have a lot to add there. I don't, I've, I've not dug into small modular nuclear. Um, I, but I, you know, my prior certainly is, is similarly, um, similarly bearish on the prospects just from a market perspective. Okay. Well, we are closing out. We're running down the clock here. So are, are you going to go design new carbon labels for, for these companies, Shale? I mean, are they going to bring you on to help them figure out what carbon labels should look like? Totally. Yeah. If anyone has seen my stick figure drawings, they will immediately think graphic design is my thing. <laughs> I'm all for it. Well, this has been a really fantastic conversation. Um, we want to thank everyone who's been live here watching us for taking time out of your day, submitting questions, keeping us on our toes. And um, to all the folks who are listening to this afterward, you can always submit your story ideas via Twitter or send us an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com. And we definitely love to hear from folks and it helps us plan out future shows. And uh, if we have any experts out there who are covering small modular nuclear, who are covering renewable natural gas, those are topics where we would love some more direction on what would be meaningful in the way we covered those. Shale, thanks so much. Good conversation. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks everybody for listening. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Shail Khan is my co-host. I'm Stephen Lacey. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Uh, do us a favor. If you're out there listening, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Super helpful. And we are so appreciative of your support. Thanks for listening.